KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. The governor signs a host of new laws regulating the cannabis industry. These laws are, are intended to uh, right what many consider to be wrongs. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. It's hoped care courts will fix some of the problems with conservatorships. We get back the collateral damage when they are let out of a hospital too soon and then they're again arrested again. It's us having to run to court hearings. Nobody shows up for that. The ultimate green form of burial could be human composting. And a surfing film from Australia debuts in San Diego. It's called Facing Monsters. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a slew of new bills aimed at the state's cannabis laws. The laws are focused on bolstering the state's legal cannabis industry while also protecting employees who use marijuana away from the workplace, sealing past marijuana convictions, and expanding access to medical marijuana. Here to talk more about the new cannabis laws is San Diego journalist and managing editor of San Diego Magazine, Jackie Bryant. And Jackie, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Thank you for having me. Now, you've been covering cannabis in California for quite a while. Were you surprised by the number of bills that made it into law this legislative session? So actually not. Um, I think the thing that um, most people probably don't know is that at any given moment, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bills coursing through the legislature or at least being introduced and sitting there or what have you, right? The same is for cannabis. And at any given moment, there are dozens in play, either quietly or, or what, you know, whatever the case was. So a number of these had been introduced some time ago in the, during, you know, the previous legislative session and, 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 and ones before that even. And um, he just decided to to sign a bunch of them in one fell swoop. So I, I'm not surprised at all, but it, and also he has a lot of political pressure right now. The industry isn't really doing so well. And so um, I think it is expedient for him, uh, politically speaking, to uh, get a few of these out of the door. Now, the focus of at least some of these bills is aimed at criminal justice reform. Can you tell us about some of those? So a big criticism of consumers and advocates since Prop 64 passed in 2016 and and became law in 2018 is that, you know, we legalized cannabis, California, but we didn't really legalize it. We said, sure, you can buy it. You can consume it in the privacy of your own home. You can even grow up to six plants. But the truth is that there are many prohibitive things in everyday life. Like if you're renting a property, you pretty much everyone has in their lease clause, they can't smoke in their own home, for example. So if it, is it really legal then if you can't actually do it? And so these laws are are intended to uh, right what many consider to be wrong. So employee use outside of work is a huge one. Um, in, in the past, companies have been able to drug test any employees. They're allowed to, to do that. There wasn't 
too much prohibiting them from doing it. AB 2188 is a quirks bill, and it would make it unlawful for an employee employer to discriminate against a person in hiring, termination, or any term or condition of employment or otherwise penalize a person solely because of off-duty marijuana use. So this prohibits employers, not de-incentivizes, it prohibits them from any disciplinary action, including firing if they test positive for THC. There are exceptions for certain positions. Obviously, federal employees are still subject to that. You know, in this, a lot of people think in the same way you're allowed to drink off the clock. Why shouldn't you be able to smoke weed? So that that's a huge one for consumers, for consumers rights, definitely. And the other one is, is, is really fascinating. AB 1706 is um, Mia Bonta's legislation, and that forces the courts to seal cannabis records for qualifying cases up until June 2020. So anything before that, if you apply and you meet the criteria, you will have your records automatically sealed. And so advocates say that this is really important because again, if weed is legal, but you have a prior conviction on your record for it, you can still be penalized. It can preclude you from having certain jobs, from housing, et cetera. And so now with those record seals, it goes hand in hand with actual legalization and actually making it okay for people to consume this and and no longer be penalized for it. You know, when cannabis was legalized in California in 2016, as you mentioned, many had hopes of creating a thriving legal cannabis industry. But the reality is that the legal cannabis industry has struggled and the illegal drug trade remains. Why is that? The truth is, is that California and the West Coast in general is the physical home of the illegal cannabis industry in this country. And that started ramping up in earnest during the 1980s when, you know, the federal government ramped up the so-called war on drugs. So the industry has always been based here. There have always been people growing here. And and that cannabis has been exported all over North America and certainly all over the country. That's not going to disappear overnight, even with the best laws in place. And so that's one thing that that everyone needs to take into consideration when bringing something from the dark to the light, as legalization is intended to do. It's a process. There's going to be a lot of gray areas. And so that that industry, which was several billion dollars strong and eclipsed is the size of the legal industry in the state by many billions of dollars, actually. It was never going to go away overnight. That being said, there are a number of significant challenges for this industry's success and survival. Number one is very high taxation. Again, if people are used and they, 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 have, a, they have a connect where they can get cannabis on the street or illegally, they're not paying taxes on that. So now you're slapping about 35% taxes in most cases People are not really incentivized, especially when that market is mature and existing. And it's it's really not hard to get weed in California, let's be honest, whether legally or not. The other thing is that there are layers of taxation on businesses and regulations that require a lot of money up front for would-be cannabis professionals to, to meet. It's expensive to get licensed. It's very expensive. And in most cases, especially for small companies or small growers, it's prohibitively expensive and they're not able to do it. So what newly signed laws are aimed at bolstering the legal cannabis industry? All of these. And in fact, there is one law in there which is concerning interstate commerce. And that is intended to move this industry forward and move it out of just being siloed in California, right? So every state legal cannabis industry in the United States 
has to be contained solely within that state because we do not have federal legalization. And so that obviously creates limitations for business owners. If you can't get your product out of state line, you only have to work with a certain, a very specific population. So while interstate commerce for cannabis is by no means legal federally, uh, Newsom did sign into law a bill that would get that ball rolling, basically saying that it's okay for California cannabis companies to be able to reach out of state. This helps small growers and small business owners, especially because larger, more well-capitalized companies are allowed to stack their licenses. And, and it's really hard for the smaller guys to compete with that. It's the same as in any other industry, right? And this gives them the opportunity, hopefully one day, to be able to sell their wares outside of state. It sets the stage for interstate commerce of cannabis, even though it's a little one-sided, but it's basically California um, leading the way in that, if that makes sense. And can you tell us maybe another bill that the governor signed that you see as significant for cannabis in California? Um, so a really cool one, actually, was that they have now allowed uh, veterinarians to uh, to recommend cannabis use for pets. I can say uh, from experience that you may not want to use THC products with, with dogs and cats. They don't always react well to it. But CBD has been uh, has been widely used and, and quietly recommended by veterinarians for a very long time now for the same reason that humans use it. Um, dogs and cats have the same endocannabinoids system that humans do. So in the same way we might use it, their bodies would respond in a similar way. So for inflammation, anxiety, or, or other things like cancer treatments. So that's, that's a pretty cool one because it now allows, you know, licensed veterinarians to be able to make more holistic recommendations for, for pet owners who are seeking alternative treatments. Now, finally, there have been some recent rumblings of uh, Governor Newsom's presidential ambitions. If he were to run, how do you think that would impact the issue of marijuana legalization nationwide? It's interesting. So Biden, although he did campaign on, you know, nobody should be in jail for cannabis, et cetera, et cetera. He has not really done a good job in many people's eyes with, with moving that agenda forward, to say the least. He hasn't really done anything. And to be fair, there are big issues going on in this country right now, right? So a lot of people are not happy with the Democrats at, at the federal level or even the state level. So while Newsom did, he is sort of the father of legal weed, governmentally speaking, in California, many advocates and business owners are very, very disappointed with the way the industry has gone because, again, they do find the regulations to favor big business and not honor the legacy of the black market that came before it, people who were criminalized and now don't really have the financial ability to participate in this new legal world, and they're getting shut out while bigger corporate entities are taking over. The general opinion is that Newsom has not been a friend to the industry, even though he did legalize it. They don't think he did a great job. So it, it's like anything with cannabis. It's not so black and white, and it's a, a bit more complicated than it seems. But I do think ultimately it would probably be a good thing, at least for making it federally legal. The way the rest shakes out definitely remains to be seen. I've been speaking with Jackie Bryant, journalist and managing editor of San Diego Magazine. Jackie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
Elected leaders across the state have a homeless crisis on their hands, and some are turning to one possible solution, mental health conservatorships. But an investigation by our partners at iNewsource found major gaps in the system and frustration from family members who say they've tried for years to get help for their severely ill loved ones. iNewsource investigative reporter Jennifer Bowman has the details. Anita Fisher has been here before. I'm... Sad to say that he decided not to get his monthly injection. Anita's son has schizophrenia. He's been kicked out of the army, spent several months homeless, and cycled in and out of jail. For years, Anita tried to convince officials and her son that he was so sick he needed help, even if it meant treating him involuntarily. In 2014, there was some action. Her son was placed on what's known as a conservatorship, but it was short-lived. He was released after just two weeks. We get back the collateral damage when they are let out of a hospital too soon and then they're again arrested again. It's us having to run to court hearings. Nobody shows up for that. Some San Diego leaders support expanding mental health conservatorships. The legal process means a person's decisions like whether to take medication or to live in a locked facility is placed in the hands of someone else. Sometimes that someone else is the county. But iNewsource spoke with nearly 40 people and found a system riddled with gaps. Some are frustrated by the lack of resources and what they say is a reluctance by decision makers to pursue conservatorships. Joseph DeVico is a consultant who works with families trying to get help for their loved ones. You know, so I always tell people all we can do is we can just we have to keep throwing the truth out there and you just have to hope that you catch a conscientious person on a good day. Hello. CHP, Highway Patrol, good morning. Uh-huh. Yeah. You mind if I talk to you for a minute, ma'am? Uh-huh. Many people are involved in the conservatorship system. Police take people to the hospital on 72-hour holds. Hospitals decide whether they should be held longer and if they should recommend conservatorship. And then county officials choose which ones to take to court for ultimate approval. New York University professor Alex Bernard has studied the system extensively. Everyone in that chain is thinking about something that often is not actually a legal criteria for conservatorship or whether a person would benefit from conservatorship. Data shows San Diego County has been receiving fewer requests for conservatorship and taking fewer of them to court. But Supervisor Nathan Fletcher says they're focused on early intervention and that they're getting more efficient because the court has been approving petitions more often. There's no reluctance on our part to pursue them, and we absolutely will, and we'll look for every opportunity we can when it's appropriate. Now, officials have turned to care court. The new program sets up people with a behavioral health plan and county supporters. It's meant to offer care earlier, but if a person doesn't complete the program, they could be recommended for conservatorship. Opponents of the hotly debated program worry about forced treatment that will disproportionately affect homeless residents. Supporters like San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria say it's a state mandate to help vulnerable people living on the streets, even if there are still unknowns. Waiting to collect a bunch of data uh, to address this literally consigns people to die on our sidewalks. And I'm just not willing to wait that long. And I don't think most Californians are willing to wait. Care Court will roll out in San Diego by October 2023. That report was from iNewsource reporter Jennifer Bowman, who joins me now. And Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The woman in the beginning of your report, Anita Fisher, whose son has been in and out of care, also shared her struggles with the mental health system with us when we spoke with her last week. 
And at the end of your report, Mayor Gloria says there's no time now to collect data before implementing the new care court system. My question is, why wasn't data on conservatorships being collected all along? Yeah, um, you know, so experts and, and those who work in the field who we spoke with kind of point to this, this key problem uh, being the lack of state oversight. And, you know, the many players who are involved in the system, including, you know, privately operated facilities. So you have counties really in charge of the vast majority of conservatorship rules and procedures, you know, but they, they have actually a pretty limited role in the entire process. You know, they, they simply decide which ones go to court. And that's a big step, but, but one of many. Um, there's also something I, I heard over and over again during my reporting. And one lawyer we spoke with who works in this field, you know, kind of pessimistically perhaps uh, talked about how people with serious mental illness don't necessarily have a good lobby at the state level. And that um, perhaps it's getting more attention now because it really confronts our very visible uh, housing and homeless crisis. And so these problems in, in conservatorships have been longstanding. They're not new. And, and advocates tell us actually that these problems have gotten worse. Since we know so little about this, is there any actual evidence that mandated treatment for severely mentally ill people works to keep them safe and alive? When we began this reporting, that is the question we were hoping to answer. You know, how well are conservatorships working as we talk about potentially expanding them? Um, unfortunately, because of the lack of data surrounding all parts of this system, that wasn't something we were able to definitively answer. However, you know, there is research that some advocates, um, such as Disability Rights California, they point to evidence that shows that, you know, ad adequately resourced intensive voluntary outpatient treatment is more effective than what we see ordered by a court. Much of the problem before the care court system was signed into law seems to be a reluctance to qualify incapacitated people for conservatorships. Is that supposed to change under the new care court system? Certainly, that's the argument we hear from folks, including parents trying to get help for their kids with serious mental illness. You know, they speak about this reluctance. Um, one mother that our reporting highlighted, her name's Anastasia, she spent much of the pandemic trying to track her son as he went through homelessness, psychosis, some really concerning declines in his physical health. And, and ultimately, he wasn't referred for a conservatorship. We heard multiple stories like this. Care court really is branding itself as this less restrictive, earlier type of intervention, and that it specifically is not a conservatorship process. So supporters hope it reaches people before something as restrictive as a conservatorship is needed. Tell us more about the concerns of mental health experts about the lack of infrastructure in place that care court conservatorships need. Yeah, care court is going to take resources, the, the same resources that are lacking now, you know, housing, beds, staff, funding, um, community based treatment programs, all the things that are needed uh, for people who have serious mental illness to recover and to restore their health. Um, and we've seen you know, very big investments for behavioral health and housing, both here in San Diego and at the state level. But with plans to roll out this first wave of care court by uh, next year in San Diego, uh, would like to launch it even earlier. That's an ambitious timeline for an infrastructure that's hurting for these things already. 
Some disability rights groups, as you mentioned, oppose mandated treatment for severely mentally ill people because they claim that some people can get stuck in conservatorship. Tell us about that. We had a a New York University professor who studies conservatorships. um, He had a really interesting take on this. He said he's learned from his research that everyone's perspective is actually true. So it is both true that people who could benefit from conservatorship are not being put on them, and those who don't need it get stuck. Um, And he goes right back to what we hear about this lack of accountability and oversight. There's so much we don't know about our conservatorship system. Our data is so bad that we don't know how many people in California are on one. There's just no visible statewide strategy on conservatorships. And so how it's being used and applied really varies from county to county. And that can include, you know, for example, which conservatorships are getting renewed. Um, They can be renewed on an annual basis. Um, And one thing we really noticed, unfortunately, in my own reporting and most reporting on conservatorships, what a missing voice is the voice of people who have actually experienced conservatorships firsthand. Um, There are probably likely reasons to that. And I I know the challenges I faced in my attempt to to do my reporting. But I do wish that we heard from more people um, who have experienced conservatorships firsthand for questions, you know, just like the one you have. I have been speaking with iNewsource reporter Jennifer Bowman. Thank you so much. Thank you. This story was reported with the help of USC's Annenberg Center for Health Journalism. To read more about San Diego conservatorships, go to inewsource.org. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. As states across the country pass abortion bans, President Biden and some other Democrats want to ease federal restrictions on the procedure. Federal provisions prevent taxpayer funds from being used for abortions and also restrict abortion access at military hospitals. Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project. Air Force reservist Barry Wald was 34 years old and living in Japan when she became pregnant for the first time. She and her Marine husband very much wanted the child, a baby boy, but a prenatal test showed severe birth defects. I I got a phone call from the the maternal fetal medicine doctor and she asked if my husband and I could come in, which now I know, know, if you ever get asked to come into the office, that's probably not good news. The couple decided to terminate the pregnancy at 19 weeks. But because U.S. military hospitals in Japan wouldn't perform the abortion, they went to a local clinic in Okinawa. Wald says the care there was rough and unsanitary, and the language barrier made it hard for her to understand what was happening. I have never felt so much pain in my life. No sedation, no painkillers, nothing. Blood running down my legs. Wald would have preferred to go to the Naval Medical Hospital on Okinawa. But for decades, a federal provision has banned abortions at military hospitals, with few exceptions. It's been a particular problem for troops and their families serving overseas, where private medical care is inconsistent. But it's now become a bigger issue for service members in the U.S., as states ban abortion. Wald, now a veterans advocate in Indiana, worries for military women. It's a lonely place to be when you go through something like this, and especially um, in the military. 
access to abortion has been deteriorating for military women much longer than it has for civilian women. In 1976, shortly after the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade, Congress first passed the Hyde Amendment, which began to restrict the use of federal funds for abortion. Now, federal statute bars military hospitals from performing abortions, except in cases of rape or incest, or if the life of the mother is in danger. People can't self-pay for them either. Friar Reedland is with the Center for Reproductive Rights. Essentially, federal law prohibits the Department of Defense from providing abortion services at military treatment facilities. Um, and abortion access should not depend on how much money somebody makes or where they live or if they're a member of the military. Reedland says the restrictions have taken on new relevance since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade earlier this year. Service members can't choose where they're based, right? So they have no choice but to um, navigate this maze of state restrictions and now increasingly extreme abortion bans to try to access care. While Congress has reenacted Hyde every year for more than four decades, both President Biden and Senate appropriators have recently proposed ending it. Claire McKinney is a professor of government and gender, sexuality, and women's studies at the College of William and Mary. The Hyde Amendment is no longer something that progressive Democrats certainly are willing to accept, nor is it something that centrist Democrats are really holding on to. Still, she says, it'll be a tough political fight to get rid of Hyde and the other more permanent provisions that restrict military abortions. Even people who think abortion should be legal aren't necessarily in favor of seeing the federal government pay for abortions. In the meantime, the Defense Department is limited in what it can do to help service members seeking abortions. While the department has said it's committed to ensuring access, its actions so far has taken the form of expanding free contraception at military medical facilities. And some of the service branches have assured service members that leave will be available if they need to travel for abortions. This is Carson Frame reporting. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In California, we're used to home prices going in one direction. That's up. But in recent months, the residential real estate market has cooled. And today, the Federal Reserve announced another real estate hike. The California Report host Sal Gonzalez has more. So here in California, a pretty cold blast of air has blown through what's usually red-hot residential real estate markets. Take this example. Property tracking firm DQ News says home sales in Southern California dropped 28% from August of last year to August of this year. And in recent months, home values have either stayed frozen or declined by 2 to 6%, depending on the area. UCLA real estate professor Eric Sussman says that in Los Angeles, changes like this can be dis- orienting to real estate veterans. We definitely had a softening of the market, which is just shocking to most Los Angelinos who have been used to prices going up, up and away. So what's creating the cool down? Well, experts say it's rising mortgage rates. The recent spike in rates adds about $1,000 in monthly payments to a home that would go for about $740,000. But for those looking for a home, the lower asking prices now and the reduced frenzy in the market are also a welcome relief. The last one we looked at was it didn't have a dishwasher. 
at an open house in East LA over the weekend where a Spanish-style bungalow was going for $850,000, I met Ashley Coley, who's looking for her first home. I've been told that we're in a better position as a buyer than it than we have would have been in the past couple of years. So that's good for me, I hope. You hope that's good for you. That, I hope that's good for me, yeah. That this trend continues. Yeah, or I hope that, you know, I hope that it's not as competitive and um, that maybe even we'll see lower prices than we have. Ashley's friend and realtor, Rachel Stamen, then chimed in, arguing buyers have slightly more clout than sellers compared to the real estate market's recent past. Yeah, I, I feel extremely hopeful for, for buyers right now, feeling they have a little more, like, control of their own future. Before, it was like if, if we were... Working with Ashley was like a million dollars. You're getting a condo. Now we're we're looking at homes. But here's a reality check. Even with a decline in prices, many Californians are still locked out of the real estate market because of how much homes are still going for, especially when you add in those mortgage rate increases. Looking into his real estate market crystal ball, UCLA's Eric Sussman predicts modest home declines in the future, but not a free fall. It's just going to be a slowdown. I've told everyone if they're waiting for a collapse, they'll be waiting for Godot. That just is not going to happen in this cycle as best that I can see. For many, that means the struggle to find an affordable place to buy and call home will go on for now. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. More and more Americans are considering the climate impacts of the choices they make. It's everything from where you get your food to what kind of car you drive. And when it comes to the delicate matter of -of end-of-life options, however, making a climate-conscious decision of how you choose to be buried isn't so easy. Traditional burial uses harmful chemicals and a non-biodegradable coffin, while cremation emits significant carbon dioxide emissions. But now, thanks to a new bill signed into law by Governor Gavin Newsom, Californians will have a new climate-friendly choice of burial, and it's known as human composting. Joining me now with more details on this alternative burial method is Tom Harries, co-founder of Earth Funeral, which currently offers the service in Washington and Oregon. Tom, welcome to the program. Jade, thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's talk about this name first. I I think human composting definitely attracts attention, but do you think that's an accurate way to describe this burial process? I have two thoughts to that. My first is yes, it is. That's the underlying science behind the process. We are balancing carbon and nitrogen and then optimizing temperature and moisture levels to create microbial conditions. These microbes, beneficial microbes, break the body down on a molecular level to produce a nutrient-rich soil. So absolutely, from a scientific perspective. From a consumer perspective, I think there's a little bit of shock factor. I think that's been intentional from some of the people who've been marketing this as a service. And at Earth, we actually call it soil transformation because we think this is a pretty special and beautiful process. And soil transformation is more descriptive and has a nicer resonance um, than human composting, perhaps. So yes and no. Okay. So talk a bit about why people opt for this method of burial. I mean, is it mainly out of climate consciousness? 
Yeah, so it's two reasons. Backing into what human compassing actually is quickly, I think I think that's a good starting point. Human compassing is an environmentally friendly alternative to cremation. Instead of being cremated and turned into ash, you're gently getting transformed into soil over a 45-day process. Um, families choose how much soil they like returned. You can keep the soil, scatter the soil, plant the soil. Much the same as cremated remains and more. And then any remaining soil, at least for Earth, is sent to conservation land that we are purchasing to then restore and protect this land for future generations. The reason I introduce it like that is I think that's the reason people are choosing it. It's gentle, it's natural, it's carbon neutral, but it's also regenerative. There's a certain poeticness to being returned to nature and having one of your last acts on earth being something that contributes towards uh, the future prosperity of the planet. How does the cost of this process compare to traditional burial methods? Average burial cost in the US is about $7,000, $8,000. That can be way higher depending upon where you are in the country. Places like San Francisco don't allow new burial grounds. It's not deemed a worthy enough use of land. So burial spots in San Francisco are particularly expensive. Compared to cremation, the average cremation with a service is about $5,000. An earth funeral or an earth soil transformation is also about $5,000. So actually pretty comparable. So we touched on it earlier, but can you talk a little bit more about how common methods of burial, like cremation and casket burial, aren't very climate friendly? The problem with existing practice is completely, as you say, it's not sustainable. Burial is putting all sorts of harmful pollutants into the ground. Um, You have 100,000 tons of steel. You have 800,000 gallons of formaldehyde, which is just toxic chemical used in the embalming process. You have 1.6 million tons of concrete. You have 30 million board feet of non-degradable wood. And that still, for reference, is more still than was used in the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge. Again, every single year being put into the ground. We also don't have land availability. 300 million people die over the next 80 years in this country, and we can't just keep putting people into the ground. We don't have the land availability. And again, as I say, cities like San Francisco, Seattle aren't permitting new cemeteries. So this is no longer a practical method of funeral ritualization. Cremation then, entertainingly, has been considered the more environmentally friendly option. And in many ways, compared to burial, it is. But the fact of the matter still stands that this is a fossil fuel driven process. It emits 535 pounds of CO2 per cremation. That's equivalent to a 600 mile car journey. That's like driving from San Francisco to Los Angeles and back. So whether you like it or not at the moment, your final act on earth is currently one of pollution. Tell me a little bit more about the composting. Is the compost nutrient rich for the earth? This is the beauty of the process. It's gentle, it's natural, but the output is useful. The output is being used for reforestation. The output can be used for wildfire restoration. The output is nourishing ecosystems for wildlife and plant life. So yeah, I think that's one of the beauties of the process. One, the actual process itself is nicer. But two, instead of an ash end product, you're getting this nutrient-rich soil, which you can either use for personal memorialization, scattering or planting, and the remainder is being used for these conservation projects. What's the downside of the process? It's slightly slower. That hasn't proven to be an issue with the families we've worked with so far. I think they appreciate that it's a natural process. We're using premium materials. We're accelerating nature. Cremation is a couple of hours. So I'd say that's the major difference. Beyond that, I don't think there is any downside. Do you think this option makes a tender subject like death more approachable when people know that they're making a climate conscious choice? Absolutely. My background prior to Earth was selling cremation. The company that I I started and ran was the largest funeral home in California by number of families we worked with each year. And we were selling 
cremation only. No one was very excited about cremation. Cremation is very functional. This resonates with people. As I say, I, I, I use these words often, but gentle, natural, carbon neutral, you're being returned to nature. You're protecting and restoring land for future generations. It's a complete reframing of death care. Death care is currently functional. It's traditional. This is a new way of thinking about it. It's exciting. Tell me more about what the response to this kind of, of burial has been. Has anyone been critical of it so far? Yeah, so there's been a little bit of criticism from the Catholic Church. Um, I think that's at an institutional level versus an individual level. We've actually had a lot of Catholics themselves very interested and pre-purchasing or actually going through our, our service in Washington and Oregon already. But to us, it's a question of consumer choice. You can choose to be buried. You can choose to be cremated. You can choose to be turned into soil. We're not saying you have to go down this route. We think this route is the best route, but it really is a question of consumer choice. So yeah, there's always going to be criticism. Um, I think some of the people who are put off by it, perhaps, are more put off by the, the thought of their own mortality and actually any death care option, more so than uh, this process specifically. And why has the Catholic Church been critical? I mean, the Catholic Church went on a journey with cremation too. So when cremation was initially introduced, they were anti-cremation, but they have subsequently come out in the past decade uh, now supportive of cremation. So I think it's just people will become more familiar with this. It will become more accepted in society. I think we'll look back in 10 years' time and think that was obvious. Why haven't we been doing that already? So does your company have plans to expand services into California? Absolutely. We are excited to launch in Northern and Southern California when the law fully comes into effect. We think Californians will love this as an option. Big lovers of the outdoors into environmental goods and services. So absolutely, yes. I've been speaking with Tom Harris, co-founder of Earth Funeral. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The Salento Surf Festival kicks off tomorrow at the La Paloma Theater with Facing Monsters. The documentary profiles surfer Kirby Brown, who tackles the intimidating slab waves of West Australia. These waves move fast through deep water and then slam down in shallow reefs at full speed. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando spoke with Brown and cinematographer Rick Rafici, who were still in Australia waiting for a connecting flight, about making the film. Facing Monsters is going to be screening at the Salento Surf Festival, which takes place at the La Paloma Theater. It's a festival founded by Taylor Steele. And Kirby, before we start talking specifically about the film, tell us a little bit about yourself and about the particular kinds of waves that you seek out. Basically, I'm chasing these different unique slab waves like Western Australia is such a raw, exposed coastline. It's got these mutant, crazy pieces of water and these waves that come out of really deep water onto these really shallow rock ledges. And they're really quite unpredictable and rogue, I guess you would call them. And I'm looking for these different pieces of water to try and try and ride, basically. What possessed you in the first place to kind of go after that particular kind of wave? Yeah, there's a few factors, I guess. It, 
a big one is just kind of removing yourself from everything and and these waves are so remote they're just in the middle of nowhere and that really appealed to me getting away from day-to-day life and and just removing yourself completely and then just being amongst this raw power of the ocean and especially in west australia those swells come travel all the way up and hit the bottom of australia there and it's so exposed and it's just it's crazy amount of water unloading and rick what did you want to capture about those waves and about those conditions to kind of make the average person understand what that was like um i mean for me it's a it's a challenge in itself to capture those sort of um raw elements of the ocean as curbs sort of explained it we live in such a raw isolated sort of country everything's so far away yet it's so beautiful um, so he'd surf these waves without cameras and then um, we'd just go along and shoot for fun and capture our adventures and we just thought that the quality and the resolution was just too good to put on the internet. So we decided to sort of compile the footage and and just, you know, stock it up until we had had a purpose for it and that's when Curbs decided to tell his story in the, in the hope that it could help someone down the line and and take them from a dark place to a, to a better place. And Facing Monsters began. And Kirby, for you, I assume you've seen the film, the finished film? Yeah. Well, I'm curious what it's like for you to watch the film where you're kind of seeing a lot of your life from the outside looking in, and especially what does it feel like to kind of see those waves that beat you up? <laughs> I live a very reserved, quiet life at the best of times, so... To commit to this scale of project and to put myself out there was it was a big thing for me. And I guess like to make a movie about your life, you really have to probably look at things in your life that you, maybe you, you, you wouldn't have before and dive a bit deeper into why you do things and the reasons behind them. And kind of all this gets unraveled within the doco, but... Yeah, to see all that and see your family and, and your life on the screen and then obviously uh, the waves and and uh, everything that comes with that, all the drama and the, the, the wipeouts and, and, and that in, in such, and the way Rick, Rick captures it, captures it so well, it's, it's pretty cool to see like the finished result in the end. Well, in terms of capturing what that experience was like, I have to say that some of those aerial shots where you saw how shallow that water was from above, like seeing how <laughs> close those rocks and and reefs were, were I mean, those shots were very impressive in terms of conveying what, what, what that feeling must have been like. Um, and it was an angle that Curbs and I spoke about that really shows the danger and the shallowness of the reef. It's a, it's a really hard angle to capture from... Um, um, and when you can't shoot land because we're so far out to sea, so no long lens will reach that far. Helicopters are super expensive and you, you've got a, a time limit with fuel. Um, so drones were the, well, a drone was the uh, obvious answer for it. And it just really shows that, um, you know, the shallowness and also the thickness of the wave gives it a really good perspective. I guess the drone, you know, obviously shows that, how shallow the waves are, but that's more that what I'm staring at when I'm surfing the waves. I'm staring at the reef, and, and it's cool to get that aerial view so people can kind of appreciate what's going on, I think. What is it like for both of you, for being the one in front of the camera and being the one behind, when something happens where you are injured and how, like, 
how close do you want to get, Rick? And how do you feel like, are you getting in the way? And, and Kirby, does, is, is that kind of a, a, does that feel like an intrusion or are you just kind of oblivious? For me, I, I'm generally like so focused on what I'm doing and trying to read the ocean and I'm really in that moment and I'm not really thinking about what Rick's doing at all. You know, I don't want to be thinking about that. I'm just trying to, to synchronise with the ocean and, and do what I'm doing. So, And I just trust that, you know, Rick's going to get the shots. Um, and, the, you know, there is, a, there is a time where you're rolling on it and you'll see Kirby wipe out and you're sort of waiting for him to pop up. And it's like you're rolling on it and it's like, okay, do I put the camera down now and jump in? Um, is he coming up? And then, you know, nine out of ten times he would always pop up, you know, and he'd be okay. So I think we're... We're very fortunate. I mean, he's a very experienced and calculated surfer. But as I mentioned before, these waves are just, you know, they're unforgiving and every, every wave's different. Nothing breaks in the same spot. So they're really hard to calculate and ride. Um, but as you'll see from the documentary, there's, you know, the perfect example there where, where things don't go to plan. But that was one of those moments where, okay, it's time to go into survival mode almost, you know, like I filmed a bit and then it was time to... Uh, going to a bit of a rescue mode. Um, so yeah, things can go, go wrong pretty quick. So you do get a good adrenaline rush out of it, which I love. This film is going to be playing at a surf festival, but it seems like for both of you, it's a lot more than just capturing what surfing is about. And so when you started, did you feel in advance that this was going to be such a personal film? I think so, yeah. I think we wanted to make something, not your stock standard surf, just repetitive waves. We wanted wanted it to have meaning, wanted a story behind it. We we're hoping to appeal to more than just your core surfers. And I think it really is a, you know, a raw, honest look with all the relationships and my family. And I think people can relate to this in some kind of yeah. way in many aspects of this yeah. documentary. Um, for me, it was just fortunate that the ocean's such a beautiful canvas to work with. Being a surfer or a slab surfer um, just allowed me to you know, work with the most beautiful environment possible, the ocean. I think it's been nearly close to a year it's been released in Australia and it's still mm. selling out cinemas here, which is, which is really good. The feedback in Australia's been awesome, so hopefully that continues. You know, hopefully you guys enjoy it over there too. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about Facing Monsters. Thank you, Beth, and thanks for staying up for us. Thanks for having us. That was Beth Alcamando speaking with Kirby Brown and Rick Rafici. Their film, Facing Monsters, launches its U.S. theatrical run tomorrow at the Salento Surf Festival in Encinitas. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.